Welcome to The Edge from Bantam Tools, our podcast about designers, educators, and businesses exploring the frontiers of digital fabrication. I'm Bree Pettis. And I'm Zach Dunham. We have a special treat for you today. Bree and I will be speaking with two of our Bantam Tools remote residents, Domrico Bene and Vince Ramirez. We started the remote residency in early 2019, about six months before recording this. And it's been an awesome way to not only get our desktop PCB milling machine in the hands of some truly talented individuals, but also to expand our community and get outside of the more traditional CNC applications we see every day. These folks are artists, engineers, or educators who either regularly use CNC machines in their work or are new to it altogether. First up, we connect with Damrico Bene to talk about his journey getting into CNC and his work over the past year milling high-resolution topographic maps. Dom, it's great to have you on the show. Maybe three months ago, I was like, okay, we're not doing any more podcasts for a while. It's, we got to take a break. We've got other stuff to do. And then Zach was like, we got to do a podcast with Dom. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, we do. Well, I'm excited to be here with you guys. I've, I've been listening to your podcast for a little bit. They're really informative. Nice to listen to. I guess to kick it off, break it on down for people who aren't familiar with you or your work. What are you doing? Uh, what's your background? How did you get into making these just beautiful CNC videos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the video part is from, uh, I have a degree in film directing from Art Center in Pasadena, California. And CNC was also had a presence there. Not in my program, though. It was more for the product design students and the transportation design students. But their big CNC machine was in this like fishbowl where there's windows on every side of it. So in between classes, I just kind of stop and be mesmerized by it. Just like, man, I don't know how they program all those numbers to make that machine work. <laughs> but um, my family, our family business is a, we sell concrete products to Lowe's and garden centers. You can go to any Lowe's garden center in the country and you'll see our products there. But oh, um, I totally didn't know that about your work. It's mostly my dad. My dad has over a hundred worldwide patents on, um, shape systems and connection systems and interlocking systems for for block and pavers. So um, I grew up watching my dad and my grandfather do everything by hand. And seeing a CNC machine work, I just kind of knew how many possibilities there would be for us if we modernized our business like that. But that was 10 years ago. And it took me kind of a long and windy path. You know, I graduated film school at, right at the recession. So Nobody was hiring. Everybody was getting fired. And I was in Los Angeles and my credit cards are maxed out. So came back home to work for the family business. Which and is in Arizona? Albuquerque, New Mexico. Gotcha. Shortly after moving home to work in the family business, Dom went on to architecture school, where he was first introduced to the Geographic Information System, or GIS software. As Dom explains... So it's kind of like a Microsoft Excel, but for mapping and cartography and process geographic data with it and analyze it. It's what, you know, FedEx would use if they want to plan routes that avoid uphill climbs and left turns. The pieces are coming together. Yeah, now. so that was at architecture <laughs> school. And so I wasn't able to finish architecture school. So I went back to the family business. All those things from the past 10 years sort of lined themselves up in my head because finally I got us to invest in CNC technology with our big DMS machine. And I thought I'd set up my camera for the first time in 10 years and make a video. I had never seen anybody do a lot of topography work 
And I hadn't seen anybody really shoot produced CNC videos. They're all kind of in the corner of the shop, some with their iPhone. So yeah, I thought I'd give it a try. And that's where it took off. Okay, so you're getting inspired by John Saunders, and you've got this new experience working with geographic data, family business in concrete, and you've got Mm -hmm. this big router table, and you set out to make this first video. What were you shooting? Uh, The first video, I I called it Rainbow Range, but it was a mountain valley out of Hard Pine, Paduk, and Purple Heart. I edited it to music. It was just for myself, really, but kind of film school, coming back, and doing the full meal deal on it. I posted it on my YouTube. It got maybe 50 views, but um, I used uh, Tools Today's um, Spectra bits in it because at the time they looked the coolest. I was calling it Rainbow Range and they're, they're you know, Spectra, purple, it just kind of fit. But I sent it to them and they were like, wow, this is the best CNC video we've ever seen. Um, <laughs> here's a form and you just sign it over to us and we can use it however we want. And I was like, well try again. (laughs) (laughs) Dom eventually came to an agreement with Tools Today to post this video. But before it launched, he shared a few clips on his own Instagram account, and it totally blew up for good reason. It's just mesmerizing and beautiful, not to mention technically impressive. Using his big DMS CNC, he magically transforms this block of multicolored veneer into a hyper-realistic southwestern landscape. If you want to quickly pause and watch it, just search Rainbow Range CNC on YouTube, and it should be the first result. How do you describe what you do right now? Is topographs it? Yeah, really I'm playing with the idea of data sculpture, and there's a lot of interpretations of that out there if you look it up. Like for me, it's um, I'm taking real data and making an accurate representation of it. So I guess it's photorealistic data sculpture. I'm not sure. I spent a lot of time looking at art, and I ended up really only liking stuff that artists initiate without knowing how it's going to end. That's what I love to do. When you're milling a topo map, what is the thing that you're always surprised by? One of the things that made me set up my camera and make a video is that I love to just stand there and watch it happen. There's something about it. It's monotonous. It's kind of like watching paint dry, but I could just stand there for half an hour and just watch it unfold. And it would be ridiculous to shoot the whole thing in real time. But I really wanted to try to find a way to compress that for people and kind of let them feel that sense of, you know, that hypnotic back and forth of the CNC machine going. And I I think I've done that. I've got a lot of people who message me and say, like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I like it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) I'm merely appreciating this for the visual effect that you've managed to create. I don't know anything about CNC machines, but this is just incredible. I really love your channel because I learn about new materials. And for our listeners, can you go through some of the, let's say, non-standard CNC materials that you work with? Well, I've done a lot of wood, but that's pretty standard. I'm really into Rich Light right now, which is recycled paper and phenolic resin. That machine's really great. I also make my own plywoods out of dyed veneers or exotic woods. Oh, that's what you're calling the Technicolor plywood. Yeah, yeah, I I make that myself. I I buy the dyed veneers, and then I came up with a pretty good way to press them and not have delamination. Cool. And not have any weird tear out with the glue in the layers as you're milling through those layers. Maybe you can resolve an argument we've been having. Sure. Around your videos, are you using an intervalometer or is there some secret sauce? Because we have some <laughs> theories here. Well, what I use is a Canon 5D Mark IV 
the reason I use that is because it has a really good interval timer built into it. So I shoot one frame every second, pretty much, which is probably five times the amount of images that I need because like a finishing pass, when I put it all together at 30 FPS, it ends up being about five minutes long. I kind of hoard my content. Like when I shoot it, I want it to have a shelf life. So I shoot it in the highest resolution possible. I shoot 7K photographs. You know, each project will be about 50 gigabytes. Milling a topo map, I can say from experience, can be a bit tricky. You first have to get the height map data, then turn it into a workable CAD file, which can sometimes be difficult due to the file size alone, and then generate toolpaths that will do justice to these geographic features. Here's Dom's approach. Step one. I download the raw data off of USGS. Step two. And then I hop into GIS software so I can open those files. And I use QGIS, which is an open source. Step three. At a QGIS, they have an exporter called raster to STL. So they have a way to export a 3D model out of that. Step four. Then I go into Cinema 4D, which I use because I am also a motion designer. I really don't recommend it for this application. I'd probably recommend Rhino. But I use Cinema 4D. I'm really fast at it. I know all the tools. I can get around with it. And being fast is the biggest reason I use it. Sometimes I have to clean up the data. If it's not really good, I've got to enhance it a little bit and make the valleys and the peaks sharper. Then I crop it the way I need to. And finally, I don't use Fusion because of that triangle problem. Some of my models are over a gigabyte large. So that's why I use Aspire, which is Vectric, and they also make Vcarve. Aspire is kind of their flagship software, I guess. The triangle problem Dom's alluding to is something I've experienced, which is when you import the STL of your topo map to Fusion, it might be something on the order of like 50,000 faces, even for a small model. And so it really bogs down the performance of the software. I love that there are data sets that are available. I have this memory, maybe 2012, of they had done a flyover of the moon where they had a satellite do really, really high-resolution moon stuff. And I ended up picking out a couple of my favorite places on the moon and getting pretty large topos of the moon. But the hard part is that like most people think the moon looks like all mountainous, but we had to take the z-height and, and really ramp it up because it's, it's pretty flat. Yeah. And so is our planet, actually. <laughs> I've had a lot of people um, say, like, oh, you should do the whole United States. And I say, could you do that? And, the, and I'm like, yeah, I could do that. But I like to keep all the elevations to scale. I don't like to amplify them or anything. And if I did the whole U.S., I think I calculated if I did it on a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood, the terrain would only be an eighth of an inch, to, uh, like a sixteenth of an inch <laughs> tall. Really, like when you stretch it out, the earth is kind of flat. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a lot of data sets available. And the great thing is, if it's government collected, we have access to it. And that's something I, I never knew I, I, until I worked at NASA in Pasadena. Zach, did you hear that? He's just like, yeah, we're not used to work it. When NASA. I was working at NASA, yeah, yeah. All right, pause, <laughs> rewind. Oh, well, uh, during Arts Center, NASA sponsored one of our classes and we were supposed to make viral campaigns targeting millennials and no one really knew what millennials were then it was the first time i had heard the word millennial but anyways they ended up really liking it at the final presentation and then they offered me a job at jpl down the street to produce some internal videos for them i was really excited I, it was an amazing experience at the time i was really young i was like maybe 20 and 
I had this mindset that I was going to be a big film director. So I, I didn't really see the possibilities for me there. But looking back, it would probably would have been the perfect place for me to have a career. But I wasn't really in that mindset back then. And now here you are sort of in a lot of respects, like a veritable ambassador of CNC to the world on the internet. How does that feel? I mean, you're not in the film industry in LA, but you it's something that are I'm, in a different film industry. I'm kind of getting used to and trying to address to because that big follower jump in May, where I pretty much doubled, a lot of the new followers were, they weren't into CNC. So I'm kind of trying to evolve it into something that's a little bit more accessible for a wider audience. One of Dom's new experiments in data sculpture has been in light painting. This is a technique where you use long exposure photography in a dark room and paint in the air with an LED or a flashlight. But instead of really abstract, blurry images, Dom has been strapping on a multicolored LED to the stationary spindle on his CNC and feeding the machine the G-code for his mountain ranges. Rather than milling them out of wood, he'd be left with a multicolored photographic representation of these mountains. Right now I'm coming up with the light brush part of it, and then that's going to be kind of a modular magnetic swap it out because there's different brushes that I can use, like calligraphy effects and line weights. I'm going to try to use a little circular LCD and do varying line weights, um, start with a pinpoint and then make it bigger and then smaller. So really a lot of things that I could do with it because it's on the CNC machine, you could really control it a lot. So yeah, you could put a little butane torch on the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> I bought some fiber optic strands that, that might be cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, I imagine you could do different colors in the same way that you do different colored papers. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to do with the RGB LED is um, it's going to respond to the internal measurement unit, uh, the accelerometer. So I'm hoping when it goes X, Y, or Z, the LED will change accordingly. I don't know what it's going to actually look like, but I tested it with the LED in my hand and it works fine. But in a controlled manner, I don't know if you're going to see any kind of pattern or not, but that's the exciting part about it. I don't know what's going to happen because I've never really seen it before. So it's just a matter of getting there and trying it out. Okay, you should totally check this out on Dom's feed, but spoiler alert, it totally worked and it's awesome. And even if you're not a light painting nerd, you'll love these images. Well, Dom, this was awesome. I definitely want to include some of the technical links and yeah, sure. that you mentioned in the show notes. Where can people learn about you and your work? My Instagram page, really. It's my home base. And I've got a website in my profile link with a little bit more information. Okay. And just for everybody listening, that's it's D-O-M.R-I-C-C-O-B-E-N-E. -E. That's his handle. Go check it out. Yeah. Subscribe. Thanks. And in terms of our listenership, is there anything they can do to support you? Follow me. But I really don't have a Patreon or anything like that, just follow me. <laughs> okay. Because awesome. I'm, I'm not selling my stuff yet, but I'm coming up with that right now and what I've made on your machine. The Matt so Domovon is kind of a prototype for what I want to sell. So stay tuned. Yep, stay tuned. Awesome. All right, thanks, Tom. Great. Thanks, guys. Now we're going to change gears a bit and move from topographic maps and data sculpture in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to a high-performance auto body shop in Austin, Texas, where Vince Ramirez has been turning the limit of desktop machining on its head. 
Rather than just accept the bounds of what these machines are capable of, he's leveraged spindle speed and in some cases custom modifications to be able to successfully employ high-speed machining strategies to these sub-$5,000 machines. Vince, welcome to the show. Hi guys, thanks for having me. From your Instagram presence, you appear to have the blood of a hot rodder, not just with cars, but with CNCs too. I try, I definitely like to make things go fast. <laughs> <laughs> totally side note, is the 84 Honda Civic in your feed, is that your daily driver? Or what kind of car do you actually drive? Oh, I actually drive a Mitsubishi Montero and they're actually pretty rare in the US, but I brought it over from Puerto Rico. It's a great truck. <laughs> That's awesome, Bree, getting right to the heart of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Vince, can you describe what it is that you do in your day job? Some people have some context here. Yeah, well, on paper it says I'm a high-performance automotive fabricator, but I usually tell people that I build dreams. And even though that sounds corny, I feel that's the most accurate description of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. You just make people happy by making things exist for them. Oh, yeah. You know, if someone wants something, there's a possibility that I can do it. I'll, I'll go for it. I hate telling people no. And I'll usually go above and beyond what most people do to make stuff, because that's also how you put yourself out there and, and have an edge. What does a day in the life of the Vince Ramirez shop look like? Oh, uh, it really depends what kind of cars are in there at the time. But usually it's probably a 14 to 16 hour day in the shop. I, I do a lot of, there's cam and CNC and, and also a lot of welding and, and sometimes all that at the same time, because uh, it's, it's kind of cool to have all that going around. But you really have to see what's in the shop. Like right now we have a Time Attack Miata. Right now they make 700 horsepower and it, it's a little different than, yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> Hopefully it makes a little bit more after the parts I put on it. So you're modifying parts for cars and these are things that you're designing uh, yourself sometimes and then doing the, the CAD and CAM work and actually CNCing them in-house. Yes, actually everything I do is designed by me. CAD, CAM, everything start to finish. I do it 100%. So it's kind of cool having that control over the whole process. Everything you get is exactly what you want. Can you give our listeners a little picture of what it looks like at your place? Like what machines do you have? Well, I'm running a small corner of a shop. And if you walk in, I have about three cars. Two are waiting for roll cages and one car I'm working on the intake manifold. I have a TIG welder in one corner. I have kind of a manual setup where I have bandsaw, sander. And in the other corner, I have my CNCs. And that's two shape Oco CNC routers. And those do kind of the hardcore work. And I like to keep them in the corner because chips absolutely just go everywhere. So it's easy <laughs> to clean up. But uh, on my main table with the TIG, I actually have a Carbide 3D Nomad and your Bantam Tools Mill just because it's just awesome having them right in front of you and being able to do everything at one time, being able to see them work. And the stuff that you're able to get out of your Shape Oco is kind of crazy. When I think about Shape Oco, I think of belt drive, I think of sort of entry level, sort of getting into CNC kits. That's not what you've got in your shop, though. No. <laughs> yeah, a little bit past Just that. straight, flat, no. That is, not, that is not what I have in my shop. You've got rails on some of these, I believe. And then what have you done to these, these poor machines? <laughs> I, honestly, I think they like me more now. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, That's great. Mainly, I, I look and see what works for the bigger machines, and I scale it down to the desktop, you know, within our, our capabilities. Just adding a couple rails 
here and there, rigidity mods is a big thing. And right now I'm doing some power modifications because I'm at the limit of uh, handheld routers. For people in the audience, the Shapeoko is a, is a kit that you get, you put it together, it uses a standard router that you really bolt on as a spindle. Like a DeWalt hand router, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely like um, the Makita. What's cool is that actually goes up to 30,000 RPM. And that puts you in the high-speed machining category, you know, with the Daytrons and stuff like that. And if you use that kind of mentality, it's not a hobby machine anymore. It can kind of do whatever you want, as long as you work within its capabilities and really understand what's going on. After 18 years of being a fabricator and doing stuff manually, it's just been a breath of fresh air to be able to make things I'd never been able to do before and being able to design things that weren't physically possible to, to make by hand. So... Right now I'm working on uh, intake manifolds because there's some types out there that you can't get on the market, you know, stuff you can't just buy. The first thing Vince did when we sent him our machine was not so much making functional hardware for his business, but more exploring the limits of what a 17-pound CNC with a 26,000 RPM spindle was capable of. I've put some of my favorite posts he did in our show notes, like when he brought the machine into the desert and hooked it up to his solar panel to create a kind of desert island CNC. But to put it in his own words, the Bantam CNC brought the shiny. After getting comfortable, he essentially turned a wrought piece of aluminum into a mirror. I remember when we first sent you our machine for the Bantam Tools remote residency, the first thing you did was, I think you modified a collet to fit like an $80 Daytron tool. Yeah, you kind of have to see what's the biggest thing you can fit in there, right? (laughs) (laughs) How hard can you push it? Yeah, Yeah, that's what you got to figure out. Well, it's like, what can you do with 70 watts? You know, that's about the spindle power, right? It's so small to most people, and they would think you can't do anything, but that's where the fun challenge is. Like, you know, what can we do? And uh, you have a different machining strategy, um, which is, you know, just even judging by the, the size of the chips coming off of the workpiece and the stock in your videos, it, people are really impressed, not just by the thing that you're machining, but the, the approach that you're taking. It's a much more industrial um, approach. It's this sort of high-speed machining approach. What's the secret sauce that you have for people who are just getting into this who are like, my machine isn't doing that. It's not, it doesn't look like that when I run it. <laughs> well, I got to say, there is no secret, but that is a two-part answer. The first part is really, you know, seeing what works for the bigger machines and just scaling it down to us, you know, with even the work holding, the, the style of machining, the tooling is a really big thing. Quality tooling can make or break you. And the second part is just understanding your machine, understanding how it works, you know, understanding the process and learning, you know, chip loads, how to adjust your axial and radial loads to, to work within your machine's capabilities. And you can pretty much make whatever you want. It may take a little bit longer, but you can do it. What's the frontier look like for you? Like, what are you excited about? I'm actually really excited about how companies are supporting the maker movement. You know, it seems like a lot of the companies are still developing the desktop machines. And, and that's pretty cool seeing that there's not the same amount of money there. Uh, from the customers that there are in the bigger machines. But I, I love that you can now get a water jet that fits on your desktop. That's amazing. And I, I'd really love to see a little bit more affordable five axis, even though that's asking for a lot. But in the future, I'd really like pretty much everybody I know that fabricates to be able to have one of these and see you know, what they're missing. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, How unique is your setup? I'm sure that you have a good network of other people that are doing the same kind of work. Do they too have desktop CNC machines or low cost CNC machines that they're using to prototype stuff in house, or are they using a you know third party service? Some of them use third party, but most of the people that I've talked to have actually 
jumped on the bandwagon of the desktop CNC because of showing them what it's possible, you know, after you learn what you can do and your capabilities. So a lot of my fabricator friends have actually bought CNC machines. It's been really cool seeing their feeds too, you know, helping them out, spitball ideas, speeds and feeds. So I've been really looking forward to asking my favorite question of you, which is if you had infinite resources, couldn't fail, and if you had infinite time, what would you do with infinite resources? I personally think I would do the same thing I'm doing now. I really like pushing these desktop machines and showing people what they can do. And it's a really inexpensive way to learn. That's one reason why I probably wouldn't go out and buy a $100,000 machine, even if I had it. Because, man, crashing one of those, I would just cry. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something pretty freeing about having a machine that you can you can break and fix. Oh, yeah. It helps you kind of push the envelope. It definitely makes learning a lot faster, I feel. There's a lot less risks on the table. So if I had unlimited you know, resources, I think I'd probably be doing the same thing. I might be driving a little faster car. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that metaphorically, though, right? Like, like you'd be driving a faster CNC? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a turbo I'm going to put on Montero, hopefully. So. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Top five tips for somebody just getting started in CNC, whether they're an industrial designer, mechanical engineer, because I know people hit you up all the time. Vince, how do I do what you're doing? You definitely have to put in the work. That's number one. I started this whole journey knowing zero about CAD or CAM. So it does take a lot of work. And it may take a lot of YouTube. Some people who are visual learners can take to that. But also be prepared to make a lot of mistakes. You know, and that's not a bad thing. I feel like mistakes are some of the best things to make. Especially on a desktop machine because they're not too expensive. You know, you break an end mill you lose 20 bucks. It's not too bad. Um, definitely understand how your machine works and how you can make your parts to fit its capabilities. You know, you guys have to work together. It's not like you're telling this huge machine you need to do this and it'll do that. Another one is really understand the process, you know, put in the time to learn how end mills work and how the material shears and chip loads, stuff like that. I have to say, just for our listeners, if you're not following Vince on Instagram, his handle is at Vince.Fab. And if you're not a speed fanatic or have a love of aluminum parts, custom, or if you don't know what a total jumble of noodly pipes look like coming out of an engine, you have to go and get it, you know, check this out and, and you'll find yourself addicted. It's so good. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's great to catch up with you. We're going to just continue enjoying the adventure on Instagram. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for season three. I can say that since recording this, Vince put the PCB mill to work in his shop and milled out a custom throttle flange. It came out pretty great. If you're listening to this and are interested in becoming a Bantam Tools remote resident, drop us a line at info at bantamtools.com. And if you've enjoyed this season, we'd love a review, a comment, a share. Help us spread the word. Until next time, happy milling. Thank you for listening to The Edge, the Bantam Tools podcast. Check out all the show notes and the links at bantamtools.com slash the edge. Make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.